Welcome to the Climate Pelicans Brief, a podcast bridging the gap between climate science and Louisiana frontline communities. I'm Corinne Salter. And I'm Jill Tapitza. Join us as we disentangle environmental justice issues facing Louisiana using peer-reviewed science as well as the voices and lived experiences of community leaders. Our goals are to uplift activist platforms and raise awareness about the many environmental puzzles in Louisiana. While contextualizing everything through the lens of climate crisis mitigation. Ms. Megan Milliken Biven is the founder of True Transition, an energy worker advocacy organization devoted to improve the energy jobs of today and tomorrow. She currently resides in Vienna, Austria, although she knows what it means to miss New Orleans. She has most recently written federal legislation, the Abandoned Well Act, a new executive level agency to directly employ oil and gas workers with the mission of identifying, tagging, plugging, and abandoning and monitoring millions of oil and gas wells that plague American lands and waters. She is also working to give the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers its public dredge fleet back. Megan Biven began her quest to save her home state of Louisiana from coastal inundation and industrial pollution when the levees broke, and she hasn't stopped since. She graduated with a master's in public policy from the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and began her federal career as a presidential management fellow for the then Marine Mineral Service and now Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management. And she started that the week the week of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. As regional infrastructure expert, she analyzed infrastructure networks in the context of macroeconomic trends, natural disasters, and climate change. As a program analyst, she conducted research and wrote policy recommendations on financial assurance of orphan wells and helped lead the establishment of the Gulf of Mexico Renewable Offshore Energy Leasing Program. These issues are immensely personal to Ms. Biven. She grew up in the narrow Mississippi River frontage between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, known as Cancer Alley, and indeed many of her family have been afflicted with diseases of industry, including her mother, who is in remission from breast cancer, and her small son, who spent his earliest years on nebulizer. Um, nebulizers and is in and out of the children's hospital. She graduated from St. Mary's Dominican High School in New Orleans. Welcome to another episode of Climate Pelicans Brief. We are so glad to have Megan here with us today from True Transition to talk about a renewable transition, um, specifically in Louisiana. We are very excited to have her on this podcast. Thanks, Megan, for uh, joining us all the way from Austria. Thank you all so much for having me. Really excited to chat with you. Cool. Um, so right off the bat, we wanted to ask you a little bit about the nonprofit that you started. Could you tell us about the mission of True Transition? True Transition is an organization that uh, I founded with some other people trying to actually create the conditions and the policy for the energy transition that results in you know good paying, safe, quality jobs. And so it's about like actually sitting down and figuring out like, okay, atoms for rabbit, atoms, like what do we need to replace what we're producing now? And how do we do that in such a way that benefits regular working people and their families and communities? Yeah, awesome. So um, going off of that, what are, what's the biggest change or what are the biggest changes you want to see happen to improve Louisiana or our energy structure, which is what you're focused on? I think for the energy structure, first and foremost, you know, I began this work looking first at energy and like how to change, like, okay, we want to switch from natural gas to wind. And then I arrived at a space where it's like, okay, well, if we really want to do this. Then we, we need to do is it's about who owns that power and who controls that power and who determines the quality of those jobs. What I want to see is an energy transition that creates shared prosperity for all Louisianans. Because even though we produce, you know, a huge percentage of the refined product for the entire nation, now we're set to export natural gas for the world. We're, we're set to be the dumping ground for carbon from across the United States. Regular, regular Louisianans don't see a shred of those benefits. It's all looted to the top. And so I want this conversation to shift, not just from about, you know, shifting the energy, but using this as a pivot point, as an opportunity to really deliver on the promises of what 
Louisiana should be for everyone. Cool. Yeah. So kind of taking that like structure where there's a lot of wealth near the top and spreading it out through throughout um, all the way down to the regular folks who are working. That's really awesome. Yeah. yeah, we produce the energy. We should be able to enjoy the fruits of that energy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, with you saying that it might be really interesting for you to share like what your personal experience is with that, you know, being um, a New Orleans native yourself and kind of uh, having that experience of just like an everyday citizen in Louisiana. Um, maybe you can share like what was your personal draw to wanting to make sure that everything trickled down to even regular citizens? <clears throat> okay. So, <laughs> everyone's origin story, right? You know, I think was probably about your age uh, when Katrina happened, right? And I think for a lot of people in my age cohort and probably younger, that was a, a radical, radicalizing, clarifying moment where, you know, all of these things you accepted as a given, like the land beneath your feet, the levee behind your house, you know, were not as solid and real as you thought they were. That the people in charge making decisions, you know, collecting the money, you know, employing people didn't actually have your best interests, that we were going to have to figure this out ourselves. And so that's where my charge began. I got into this first and foremost because of coastal erosion and coastal restoration, you know, and along that journey, it's, I always liken it to, I don't know if y'all are too young for Simpsons reference, but there's Bart Simpsons is like faux sideshow Bob. There's one episode where he's going through a yard and he keeps on stepping on, uh, rakes and they keep on hitting him in the face and that's kind of been you know my last year few years where I just keep on getting hit in the face with rakes and you know it's like it's not as simple as like coastal restoration they're like oh wait you know we have to actually create a pathway we have to diversify our economy and that means we can't just be singular on one type of energy oh wait we have a dredge cartel oh wait we have these orphaned wells oh wait we have eighteen thousand miles of pipeline uh so it began first like solve a problem like how do we make sure that louisiana is a place people can live in 50 years right. you know make sure that you can actually ensure your home and that where your great great grandparents you know lived you can live one day and so that's where it began for me and you know as you proceed on that journey all of these things are very interconnected and then you have to learn and become passionate about those things as well yeah I think that's um a big thing that radicalized me too you know I was pretty young whenever Katrina hit but just having that sort of like home instability at that moment and not really knowing you know would our home still be there or would we be able to go back anywhere you know um having that sort of like um instability like I said not really knowing where we were going to be next it's really scary and it honestly radicalizes you to want to make make a change about it and I'm sorry you experienced that and no child should have to experience that and you know, when you look at the natural wealth that Louisiana is endowed with, when you look at what it provides for the nation and now the globe, it is criminal that a single child would know that kind of insecurity and not be able to rely on their government with the largest military budget on the planet. And then we can't even guarantee the security and safety from just a normal routine, predictable event that we knew was coming. You know, that yeah. is criminal. And, you know, I believe in government. I believe in, you know, like what else is going to be there in its stead, right? Like their government is merely a vessel for our shared public interests and needs. And we can build something that works and protects us, but we have to actually have power to be the ones in charge to do that. And so that's the task and that's the journey. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, amazing. And you touch on this issue that we we have, like as a theme throughout this podcast, which is that. The, the interconnectedness of all these issues in Louisiana. Louisiana is a sacrifice zone, like sort of where all these issues, a tangle of environmental issues, a tangle of economic issues. And like you were saying, getting hit in the face with all of those rakes at once, the minute you like pull at one of those strings to try to address a problem, 10 more pop up in its place and you realize that you, you can't make a change without affecting something else. Um, but I also think that's kind of beautiful because that means once you've solved one problem, it kind of has a positive effect on all the other ones. Um, For sure. There's a cascading effect. Yeah. And so nothing is futile. And that means that like, you don't have to, to, to try and solve everything, but the one thing that you're really focused on does matter and it is important. And, you know, I, this, I mean, I know this pod is for the youngins who are studying yeah. right now and choosing what they're going to do. But uh, I know you didn't ask this, but like, that's my advice to young people is like, focus on the boring thing that no one seems to want to go after 
like the really like the thing that makes you like kind of your eyes glaze over and you're like oh I mean I literally have like a DNR like sheet on the other window right here and it's so boring but like to me it's interesting <laughs> after years and because of that like I, I find and I think some people would agree that I've become valuable and that I sit with the really boring document so find that boring thing because we need people and yeah I, I will go on a little side also go work for government, go work for DNR, go work for um, Department of Environmental Quality, go work for the Department of the Interior. I will do a little shout out. Sorry, this is a complete aside, but I know my audience. Go if you it. are in grad <laughs> school, if you are in grad school, everyone at LSU, I highly recommend you go to pmf.gov and register for that program. If you're not familiar with it, it's a program for people who are in graduate school or in law school, and it's a way to kind of get it fast-tracked into federal service. It's a two-year program and you get to work in different federal agencies. It's a great program. It's how I wound up in the government, but I highly recommend it because we need people in those chairs making those decisions. You know, we need people working at the core. We need people working at interior. Awesome. So you said PMF. On to your other question. PMF.gov. Great. We can type that up and put that in the show notes (laughs) later, but yeah, no, thank you for popping off about that. We have probably a lot of listeners in grad school. I mean, we're both in grad school, so yeah, always looking forward to what to do next, but that's a great piece of advice. Do the boring thing that make your, makes your eyes glaze over. Cause you know, no one's going to attack that problem with the amount of enthusiasm as someone who keeps thinking about it and, you know, interacts with it every day. Um, but so thank you for that aside. I really appreciate that. Um, so what made you decide to start True Transition? There's a lot of pieces I'm seeing coming together with your story, um, but like what, what made you decide to make that transition, start a nonprofit, do do the thing? Well, I'll give a little background for the folks because I said I, I worked in government. I worked for the Department of the Interior Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in New Orleans. And I worked there for about eight years. My husband got a job in Vienna and I left, right? We, I was like, hey, we're gonna go live in Europe. It'll be great. Um, and I decided, you know, Hey, I'm still really interested in the things that I'm interested in. I was part of the team that was working on offshore wind in Boehm. So I started writing editorials about that, started connecting with Louisiana groups. And I worked on a team specifically on orphaned wells in the Gulf of Mexico. So orphaned infrastructure and wrote some policy pieces there. And I was like, Hey, I guess I'll start harassing some congressional offices and, you know, just as a citizen going rogue. And, you know, in that Part. I actually became involved with the DSA in New Orleans, and they wanted to do some kind of organizing work. And so I thought, okay, I'll help put together a little pamphlet on workers. And, you know, just in that little research trip, I got I fell into a rabbit hole of research and discovered how many jobs we'd actually lost in Louisiana in the last 10 years. Because that was something I knew anecdotally, where my husband, who was a naval architect working in a shipyard in New Orleans, and hearing about, you know, colleagues and friends who had to leave the state because you know, the the workforce was whittling down, but I hadn't made the connection that, you know, in that same period of time between what, 2010 and 2014, we had doubled production in the Gulf of Mexico. We were hitting deeper plays, we were producing more. And at that same time, you know, workers engaged in drilling and production in Louisiana went down by 60 to 70%. And so we like, I mean, huge crash in workforce. And part of this was that, you know, the industry is just getting really more efficient. It's, uh, you know, automating a lot of its work and a lot of, you know, more job intensive things shifted to the Permian Basin in Texas. So this light bulb moment where it said, okay, this, this hostage situation that we've always had in Louisiana, where it's like the only good meaningful job creator isn't actually creating jobs. The oil that we are producing, the gas we are producing now is not for energy independence, right? It's not about energy security. They've overturned the crude oil export ban. They're greenlighting all these LNG facilities. They want to export all of this abroad, right, to play the Russian game and control people through natural resources, right, or just to benefit the the shareholders, whatever their play may be. And so all of these, you know, myths that the industry is relying upon, you know, it just like crumbled in a second in like a minute of research, right? Just like, oh, wait a second, wait a second. All of these things they say aren't actually true. And it occurred to me that there was a potential opportunity to solve some problems. And so, like I said, I worked on orphan wells and I hadn't realized working in Department of the Interior how bad it was onshore because I knew about the offshore and how bad it was. And so I, sorry for the long, uh, long journey, guys. 
Um, we'll get there. I promise you, we will get there. We will get there. Uh, here's the true origin story. I saw the last Star Wars movie. And it was awful. It was awful. And I got so mad. I went to the coffee shop and I wrote a bill. And that bill was the abandoned well administration. And I decided, this is true, um, that like the if I were to design a federal agency, what would it need? What would it look like? If we were to really marshal the resources, like World War II, marshaling of resources, how many offices would we need across the United States? 30 plus. Do you know how many workers would we need? What kind of work would they be doing to locate and plug and abandon and monitor these wells? Because we know that even if you plug and abandon, you inject cement into a well, that there is a failure rate. So even 2% of you know 10 million wells, that's the, the estimate that we have on short for onshore wells, you're gonna need this permanent workforce. So this aha moment, whereas guess what? An energy transition doesn't necess necessarily mean that we have to get rid of oil and gas workers. We actually need them forever. We need trained oil and gas workers forever because this infrastructure and the way the dynamics means we need to specialize these, these skill sets forever. And they could be public employees doing this work, kind of like a fire department ready to be deployed and ready to monitor and assess in perpetuity. And so like that was the green light moment. And Tree Transition was, you know, just a ragtag group of people who liked the idea as well and said, hey, you know, we need to gain uh get some support for this. But we also needed to understand like whether workers themselves would support that. And so this is a relatively new organization, but one of our first tasks was to replicate a survey that they did in the North Sea and the UK on workers about their preferences for transition. And we added some, we added some questions about workplace safety and you know benefits, like whether, because this is a bit different in the North Sea, their union in the United States, upstream oil and gas workers, the ones that do the drilling and production, the ones that work offshore, they don't belong to a union. They're usually uh, 1099 contractors. There might be, you know, 10 companies on a uh, production rig or a drilling rig. And, you know, no three guys may work for that same company. And so they're kind of, you know, on their own in terms of safety. And so we added all these questions. And so it began as a like, okay, let's support this I, this public policy idea that creates jobs and solves a huge national public policy problem has evolved into, well, there's this big workforce of skilled workers who are actually at the mercy of their employers. And there is an opportunity to engage with them for a variety of good reasons. You know, I always say like, hey, do you care about oil spills? Well, then you should care whether a worker offshore has work stop authority to stop something from being unsafe. Hey, do you wanna make sure that, you know, in a refinery is not emitting past what the regulations are so your kid doesn't wind up in the emergency room because of their asthma? Well, then you care that your um, these workers aren't working more than 12 hours in a shift and that they have the ability to report their employer. Hey, do you care about any of these things like big catastrophic explosions or a worker driving to and from a Permian site getting in a car accident? Then you care about workers. All the things we care about, it begins and ends with a worker being able to stand up for themselves and their fellow employees. And so that aha moment became true transition. And we were very fortunate because so far we have two people who've worked offshore and are incredibly wonderful human beings. Uh, Leo Linder, who was actually a survivor of the Deepwater Horizon, and then Justin Soleil, who was a blowout specialist, both in the Gulf and Alaska. And so we're growing our team and we're hoping to include more people, but that's, you know, the, the genesis. So thank you for coming on this journey with me. Yes, that's an incredible origin story. And I love that you started in the government and then got kind of figured out how all these things work. And then you sat down at a coffee shop and wrote a bill. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, Guys, if you are... <laughs> I'm sorry. Was that in one sitting that you drafted this bill to coffee Mostly. shop? Mostly. Look at me, those, the materials were there. And that's the thing, you know, it's like all the things that you don't think like will ever have a use, they have a use one day, you yeah. know? So you're just collecting. Knowledge is sticky. That's why yeah. I tell my son. <laughs> like, Knowledge is sticky. Just keep on acquiring yeah. new knowledge. <laughs> but this is the thing. It's like, it's, you know, it's not... You know, we overcomplicate public policy in the United States today. You know, we like, oh, things must be means tested. Like all we do is ration, you know, public policy, public goods and services. When what we should really be caring about is like, okay, how many people live in this area? Okay, then we should have a streetcar go every eight minutes. We should do this. Okay, we have a fire department. We have this many houses Then we need to fund them to this. Everything is rationing in the United States. You know, we're, it's more executioner than like, you know, administrator. 
It's like who gets what. And it's actually very easy when you sit down and go, okay, well, we have this many wells, we have this many estates, and this is what we would need. So public policy doesn't have to be very complicated. If you just bring the appropriate resources, you can design something and then you have to fund it and then you have to have people believe in it so they can continue to fund it. I wanna go back to this idea that you said a couple of minutes ago um, about the hostage situation, hostage situation in Louisiana where we have this, the oil and gas industry, the only, or one of the only, so they would like to think, meaningful creator of jobs in this area and the workers feel like they have to work. And then there's this big power dynamic and economic divide between the people at the top and the workers that are um, doing all the dirty work for this company. Um, so I, for our listeners, can you clarify who are those people who are at the top who are making these decisions to create this hostage situation? Who are the people at the bottom and where would you draw that line? Hmm. I mean, culture is the the water in which we swim. It's, I would say that we're all complicit to a certain degree and like that say la vie attitude, right? Like this, this like, well, we can never do better. You know, I mean, that's been like the water I've been swimming in as a kid, like, oh, they're going to move to Houston. We can't have that. You know, that that would be bad. Houston's taking all the jobs. Well, you know why they're, they're going is because of the schools here. You know, it's this, this, what's the word I'm looking for? An orosporos, a snake eating its tail. Um, and Certainly, the uh, politicians who are the vassal servants, the viceroys of these companies play their part, right? We have a part-time legislature that meets only once a year, where a not insignificant ma uh, majority of these people have full-time jobs working for the very industry in which they regulate, be it you know old folks' homes to the oil and gas industry. And so while we may have part-time representation, their companies have full-time, you know, access and servants who work on their behalf. And I mean, that very much explains what we have. And, you know, I'm, you know, as the listeners have heard a few times, I'm very snarky American living in Europe, but like living in Vienna has been very, you know, illuminating for me where, you know, in the United States, especially in Southern states where they feel like, oh, we have to bribe companies to come here. It's like, we have the Mississippi River. We have one of the deepest drafts in the country. The oil and gas is off our coast. You don't have to bribe anyone to come to the state where the things are. You know, the fact that the Mississippi River, the mouth of the Mississippi River is where it is, makes New Orleans attractive and that whole, you know, river complex attractive, regardless of, you know, how many schools you loot to like, get these companies here. And I look at a city like Vienna where, you know, it's a completely different paradigm. This Stadt Wien focuses on being a city you know it's like okay we make sure the streetcars run the, the u-bahn runs you know like streetcars run every eight minutes the u-bahn every four minutes you know it's voted one of the most livable cities on the planet every year because the city is the majority landowner of all of the rented apartments 70 percent of the apartments that are rented are owned by the city and they set prices and then there's other houses where like an insurance company can buy them and use that like part as part of their portfolio, but they have to agree with the city to keep rental rates at a certain uh, level. And then they have parks, they have public pools, they have public uh, kindergartens. And it's like, okay, you don't have to bribe, you know, any company to come here. They just want to come here because it's a good place for their workers to live. You know, they don't have to bribe anyone because people are like, oh, the healthcare is wonderful. You know, we're just going to set up shop here because it's easy. And so there's this myth that it's so hard to open up companies in Europe. But in fact, it's like, no, they, it's easy to start a business here. It's really easy, especially for like innovators, because they don't have to worry about having like human resources person navigating the PPO, the HMO, all of this garbage and whether they can like hunt for tax credits. It's like, no, they just rent a store. They set up their shop. They're good. And so I think part of why Louisiana is in this hostage situation is because it's this race to the bottom mentality that the states are playing. And it's like, no, it's government should focus on what government is good at, providing the basic services that we all need, like the water needs to be clean, you know, the, the lights need to be on, the roads and public transit, all these things need to be taken care of. But we don't believe that anymore in the United States. We magically think that we can somehow get around that, that we can still have these things, but not have a government that functions. And so while like I know that's not like, yeah, the industry has certainly created this paradigm. You know, they want us all 
I mean, they want to create like a new feudal system and it's just corporations controlling the shop. I answer that sufficiently. Oh yeah, that was great. That was great. Um, okay. I've always been, as someone who's not from Louisiana, I've always been astounded at how poor we are at leveraging our resources. Right. <laughs> right. We have, like you said, we have control of the Mississippi River. Like New Orleans is a very attractive place to be setting up, and we have all these resources. And every year after year, I hear about these companies being bribed, getting tax breaks. Um, this this fear that comes out of the policymakers, like, oh, we have to offer them enough or they're going to go somewhere else. And in the back of my mind, or usually what comes flying out of my mouth really loudly is don't let the door hit them on the way out. <laughs> um, but not everybody feels that way. <laughs> but yeah, I think you covered that um, very well. Well, and it's absurd because you can bribe a company to come, but try getting someone to stay when you can't send your kid to an affordable school that you trust because we've completely chartered the New Orleans public school system and you know that we don't invest in them properly, they're not staffed appropriately. So who's gonna stay? And there's no economic opportunities for a vast majority of the population. There's a huge unemployment rate that has just been persistent throughout the decades because we don't invest in people and don't create like meaningful opportunities. So it's like, oh, you can bribe these companies to come, but are they gonna stay? No, because you haven't created the conditions for a place that's livable. And so government, again, needs to focus on making the place livable. Yeah. If they, if they really want to be attractive. So even though I kind of contradicted myself, I acknowledge that. Like, you don't have to bribe places. But again, like, just focus on what government should be doing. Mm -hmm. Basic Definitely. public goods and services. Basic public goods and services. I wish more people had that viewer. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you kind of like touched on this in one of your previous responses, kind of about um, the ways in which workers' rights kind of uh, overlaps and intersects with environmental justice and climate justice. Um, so like, how do you kind of navigate those conversations that you may have with people who don't really see the sort of um, value of having these sort of materialist views in the climate change movement? Who am I arguing with? What's their perspective? <laughs> um, I mean, it's easier to fight for something you want than just to fight against something you're against, right? Like, I think that, like, there is, we can keep on slaying the Goli Goliaths, which we have to in Louisiana. There's no shortage of Goliaths. But, like, eventually we have to be marching towards some kind of promised land that we can see ourselves in, right? Like, look, if we do this, it will result in this material benefit for you. If And that's why I think it was so potent and amazing. And I got to see this in real time, you know. I went from being in, you know, Jefferson Parish in uh, Harahan at the Boehm office where people were like, wind's never going to happen. That's ridiculous. <laughs> right. And like, I saw the NREL thing and our team got moving and then look at where we're now. And, and like, you could see when I first started talking to people about wind outside of the agency, just regular people about the potential. And there was like this moment of like levity in their voice where they were like, oh, like you could, you could feel this weight with the status quo, because you can't see what the exit ramp is, what the alternative is. We're just, we're so invested in this, in what we have now. But when you give people something they can see and taste, they're much more excited about their future. We have to have hope, not just like, we got to stop this thing from happening. I think people need to see themselves and their families and a future for themselves. Absolutely. It's hard to change an economic system like that. And I'm sure we've done it before and it's always scares about half the people and uh, the other half are okay with it. Um, my dog just sneezed and hit her nose on the floor. Aw, poor baby. Oh. Um, what kind of dog? Um, I've got a German Shepherd mix. Her name is Stella. She's our uh, mascot. Yeah. And we, um, hangs out with us for most of our Exactly. Um, yeah, she, she usually hangs out. Yeah, she, we called her out. She got <laughs> shy. She's walking away now. But yeah, she's always around um, doing the thing. Um, so going back to having people kind of see themselves on that exit ramp, seeing the way the way out of an, an economic system that's steeped in oil and gas and moving towards something more renewable. Um, can you just talk a little bit about um, is it practical for people to be hopeful, to be positive, to be just sort of jumping into this unknown future? Um, is it practical to be that positive about it? Saying like, oh, we can we can do it. We should take uh, all I think I think it's practical and necessary. 
um, to be that hopeful. But I also think we have to be practical in that we have to plan each year. Like we need to actually, you know, I think that there are some historic investments happening and there's some good moves happening. But, you know, if you look at our existing energy system, if you look at the history of oil and gas and everything we have, it was very planned. You know, the government has planned and developed the infrastructure that we have. You know, every pipeline mile, every road that was laid down, every, like, you know, during World War II, the government helped subsidize about 150 refineries, right? Even took some of them over when there were labor disputes and it kicked the boss out. You know, like, we didn't happen upon our existing security with just, you know, a few multinationals running the show and just us praying that it works out. Like it took intention, it took planning. And that's going to require the same kind of, you know, deliberation and specialization and government control. So I think like people, and we have to really deal with it. Like Louisiana, uh, you know, like we can't get around uh, fertilizers, right? We can't get around that in terms of nat like global food security. We're like, and green ammonia is something that like, we're going to have to plan around. Like we have to think about it. Like there's going to be a mid transition where, we don't have alternatives fully built out and we still need existing energy security, right? So we have to like deal with those material realities. And I think as climate advocates, we can't shy away from those. And it's, we have to really deal with those hard molecules. We have to, and we have to have conversations about nuclear. We have to have conversations about all these things. We really, really do. So I think it's good to be optimistic, but we need to like sit there and develop the plans and really get into the weeds. You know, we can't magic our way into a transition. We have to be deliberate. Like I have ideas on it, of course, but I mean, <laughs> and then we're going to, it's going to be, you know, and it's compromises are inevitable and that's politics and that's life. Um, but I think, you know, you should go in with your strongest offer and be prepared to fight for it, of course. But we, I think optimism is necessary. It's a precondition. You have to fight like how, and you have to really believe it's possible. You have to see it before you can see it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the American dream almost. Or at least it was at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um but still y'all are too young to be this cynical. Come on. <laughs> we can do this. We did it before. We can do, yeah, we can do it right. again. We can absolutely do it again. Um so like just kind of going off of that with um this transition, your idea of it being a strong government backbone, all these policy decisions that need to be made year by year with you know, really getting into the weeds and being deliberate with every step along the way and that being practical while maintaining optimism that you can see the, the end in sight. So how urgent would you say this transition is? Is this something that we should really be taking our time with, doing it sort of the slow way or in the context of climate change are all sirens blaring at this point? We really need to um, jump over to something like, where would you put your level of urgency? I would put it very high urgency and, you know, with the way I frame it when talking to the normies, as I like to call them, is like, you know, national security. Like we, I mean, this is something that like we saw during you know, COVID-19 with supply chains being as, you know, concentrated in certain areas where they were. I was listening to a book today talking, and the books on tape, like go on walks, guys. Um, I was listening to about how like 70% of the rubber gloves come from like one factory in India or something. And like, it was like crazy figure. Please don't quote me on that. Y'all listening. It was, it, was, it, was that, it was that insane of a figure. And like, so there's obviously a need and requirement. Like, so we can frame things as like, for me personally, climate change is the motivator. I have an eight year old child. Like I don't want him to inherit a world of just complete instability. But, you know, I think that there is a way to frame it for Americans, most normie Americans, that is about like, you know, economic stability, bringing home, you know, supply chains back domestically and framing it in that way, right? Like we need to be truly energy secure. Like oil and gas only has like, so, there's only so much of it, right? It is a finite resource. So diversifying our energy portfolio is an energy security argument, right? And, you know, everything can be framed in a way, I feel like that, conforms to most people's values but I mean for me like the the urgency is there absolutely in Louisiana especially you know we 
I mean, the listeners are well acquainted with Louisiana's crises and what we need to do. Yes. Um, so when you say, just to clarify for our listeners, when you're saying diversifying our energy portfolio, what you mean is that we are using more than oil and gas, we're moving into renewables, you're just, you mean that you're, we're using more than just this one resource in perpetuity? Yes, there's one resource that's finite. 78% of our energy mix right now is from fossil fuels. And, you know, we have abundant offshore wind resources, abundant solar. I know it might be a mixed thing to say we have, you know, capacity to build nuclear, we have hydro, we have all of these things. And, uh, you know, we have to be intentional. Like, where do we need to place what? You know, where can, like, we need an actual, I mean, I support a national grid. You know, I live again in Austria, most countries have national controlled grids. And what we're dealing with right now is a consequence of a system that is just so ridiculous. Like all this permitting discussion is because we just don't have a central authority planning our highway system, right? Like we have a highway system. We can have a utility system that is planned centrally. It is reasonable. I think most people, when you sit down, you're like, should the highway system be controlled by regional corporations and regional boards? You'd be like, no. Okay, well, what do you think about the grid? You know, it's it's very urgent and we need to change how things are structured to achieve that. Okay, so just to summarize, that would be deliberate policy decisions with a strong government backing these these choices that have been made to, to transition us over with optimism. Um, <laughs> I forgot the rest <laughs> I bet you're really good at essays. She like nails a conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to sum it up for anyone who missed missed any details along the way. Um, Yeah. Next. Yeah. um, I did kind of want to hit on this um, just because you do work with a lot of industry workers. Uh, It sounds like you take a lot of their experiences and their um, wants and needs for a transition in, in you keep that in mind uh, whenever you're kind of, drafting your mission and uh, going forward with your goals. So um, LSU is kind of um, kind of a pipeline for a lot of industry jobs. Um, and I feel like a lot of our listeners uh, may be considering a job in industry. And, you know, right now is really um, nationally, it's been kind of a time that's been characterized by a lot of industry workers kind of seizing their rights and, you know, seizing their power and realizing that they do have a lot of power in the positions that they have. So um, is there any advice that you may give to um, people that are conscious about the future of climate change and the future of our, um, of basically our basic needs being met, um, you know, with climate change being right at our front doorstep, do you have any advice for them going into industry while also kind of keeping the climate change overlap in mind? Hey, um, yes. Okay, because like going into my my usual advice would be like go work for government, but you know yeah. I understand <laughs> LSU is going to be. It's like you know there were there. Were, you have chemical engineers at a huge chemical engineering school. You have a huge petroleum engineering school. Yeah. Um, you know, we will still need those people for plugging wells. We will need post-carbon plastic, right? We will, you know, I had a, a friend who actually passed away years ago who I went to grad school with, amazing woman, Dr. Cece Dubois, who was from uh, Louisiana. And she had once shared with me that Louisiana had the most patents of any other state in the country. And it's all chemical patents. And so that's crazy to me. And, you know, if any place is going to develop like fertilizers that can feed our, our you know, our globe without depleting the soil and without relying upon fossil fuel inputs, you know, green, height, whatever, green ammonia. If anyone's going to develop, you know, post-petro medical plastic, you know, something that we need for medical settings, if anyone's going to do it, like, you know, Louisiana should do it. So my advice is like, don't accept the given premise as a given, you know, like we have an end in sight, like just because something is done cheaply or this is how we do it doesn't mean we have to continue doing it. And, you know, the the shareholders bottom line, it doesn't have to be your bottom line. Your allegiance can be to your fellow workers, to your community, to the people like a dollar saved to them could be a kid in a hospital. And that doesn't have to be the choice you make. You still have power. And like, yes, people have to, like, y'all are going to start families. You're going to have obligations. And it, it does become hard for people. I acknowledge that. People still have to 
honor their families, but there are there is still freedom and choice to be had by every person on this planet. You know, even if you're in an impossible situation, there's always an element of free will that you're able to exercise. So just keep that in mind. What's your guiding star? What, you know, I mean, God, like I work, I'm not going to say like working for the federal government was easy or perfect. Like it's a workplace like any others. And, you know, like I was part of a team you know, I had like, it was like the last month I worked there. I did like a rotation in uh, the plans department where I discovered it was very commonplace and just like the rotes thing that they did to allow companies to decommission a pipeline in place. The regulations, the lease agreement, everything says remove that pipeline when it's no longer commercially producing product. The agency, this one office was allowing companies to decommission those pipelines, resulting in about 18,000 miles of decommissioned in place pipelines. And I had one on my desk. And I was like, what is this? I'd never heard of this. Like in all the years I worked there, I worked in the deepest section, the environmental science. I had no idea this was something that was happening. And, you know, being who I am, like, well, I signed this under duress. You're like, you have no choice. You have to sign this. And I'm like, I'm putting this for the record. I had a whole group of people. And there was like a rogue group of people in the marine minerals program, for instance, who do the dredging sand access for, you know, the Louisiana coastal plan. There is still... A, like your ability, you still have an ability wherever you are to exercise your free will. That's my point. That's yeah. the advice. Yeah. And I love that you say that because I feel like sometimes the discussions around climate change and, you know, the climate change movement can kind of feel a little isolating and maybe polarizing to people that are industry workers. Um, but a lot of times, like our interests overlap so often that, you know, whenever employees realize that they have more of an allegiance to each other and to each other's safety within the workplace, that we actually have a lot more in common uh, with our goals of the climate change movement, as well as, you know, workers do in their everyday job. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Absolutely. Many of the day, like people in the climate movement, they don't want people to not be able to afford to keep their house warm or cool, right? They they want their kids, they want people to get to, to and from school and to work. We all care about the same things. It's just how do we deliver on that? And I think part of that is interrogating whether it's being delivered now, right? Yeah. You know, do we have true energy security? Can people actually afford it? You know, for all this abundance, how how is this trickling down to the regular citizen? the regular worker mm -hmm. and could it be done differently? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we would definitely like to hear about a big W that you've had. Um, can you tell us about the most joyful moment or a joyful moment that you've had along your journey with True Transition? Because we know that Louisiana, this type of work in Louisiana in particular is really hard. And every time you have a win, it's like, it's like 10 wins anywhere else, right? It's, we're kind of going against the grain here. So we would love to hear about something uplifting. I mean, there's so many, you know, like just meeting people who, I mean, you know, one of my colleagues, he works in Appalachia and he testified in front of Congress a few years ago. And he actually mentions like my legislation, right? Like he's like, oh, and legislation written by Megan Bivin. And I was like, oh, Whoa. And until like, you know, three, four weeks ago where, you know, I had submitted some language to a committee and, you know, Congresswoman Octavio-Cortez actually said my speech, right? Like said part of my speech, right? And people asked my questions in the committee hearing. And so that was like really gratifying, edifying and just, you know, talking to like finding people who care about the same things and want to do the same things. Um, I can you know, and just seeing like that people believe in it too, that you're not alone and that people want to build something, you know, I mean, offshore wind, that's huge. Everyone was getting all down. Sorry, I have so many like winds and joyful things. Like guys, offshore wind wasn't even on the horizon a few years ago. And we've had our first sale and people were so bummed. And I'm like, guys, we're getting leases in state waters first. They're going to build that infrastructure first. And then you will see more people going into federal waters. The fact that we had a lease in federal waters, it's huge. It took the East Coast years more to get their, their act together. The fa how fast Louisiana is moving is incredible. And I think that we should be really happy. I mean, yeah, there's so much. I will say, um, I will advertise that we don't have a number yet, but I will share it with everyone. You know, one thing, 
that we saw from our survey was that people felt unsafe to raise certain safety issues um, on the rig. And so we are actually working with a, a law office in New Orleans to launch a pilot hotline uh, in October for workers to call and anonymously report safety or or ask for legal help on like, you know, workplace issues, whether they're not getting paid overtime, et cetera. And so that is going to be called OWL, the Offshore Workers Legal Line. Um, got a little cute little owl for it too. But I mean, that's a win, right? Like that's something like we, we got some input from people. They said this is hard for them, that they feel unsafe. You know, we've actually heard stories of people where they practically mutinied offshore. You know, everyone's going to leave the boat because they don't want their employer to do something. And we've had some really high profile, you know, sea accidents recently. You know, we've had the Deepwater Asgard. We had, I need to remember all my lift boat names. The lift boat, um, was it the, not the EL. I can't remember what it's saying. I'm so sorry, folks. But the one where it flipped and, you know, eight people are still on the sea floor. You know, their families have yet to be able to recover their remains. And so that is a huge win to be able to help and do something that could potentially help people. Right. So there's no shortage of things, guys. You just yeah. gotta so many wins. Look yeah. for that. Like that. What a fantastic idea. That that's really going to revolutionize the workplace safety. I've only heard like harrowing tales of oil and gas workers being out in an isolated environment and then having the employer take advantage of them in some yeah. way. And they don't know who to tell about it or they fear um, that the employer is going to do something to Some retaliate sort of against them. Yeah. Um, so that's really incredible. I can't wait to see where that um, is in a couple of years. Um, plus, I, I love that. Well, it's, it's a pilot. We'll see. <laughs> still has the potential for greatness. Um, I Low expectations, it. guys. <laughs> That's the secret of life. Yeah, That's we got to keep my expectations great. before. <laughs> It'll be really good. Um... <laughs> I interrupted you. I'm so sorry. No, okay. uh, I'm back. Um, I, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, wind has come so far so quickly in Louisiana because so I'm not from here. I'm from the East Coast um, near the D.C. area. Um, so I've only been here for a few years for grad school and I didn't realize like what kind of scale of change we were looking at in terms of wind energy. And I, I'm just pleased to know it's come so quickly because I, I just submitted like a public comment a couple of years or a couple of months ago. And so like the fact that we're already past the point where they're getting public comments on like what the arrangement of the wind turbines should be and how many there should be and you know, all these different questions where they're taking in public consideration, the fact that they've come all the way from not even having anything in the Gulf of Mexico to we're actually going to build this out um, really speaks to the scalability and, mm -hmm. you know, um, just the amount of determination that people people like you and the government have had to, to bring about this transition. So I can't wait to see where it is in the next two to three years. <laughs> <laughs> And I want to say one of the reasons why it happened so quickly is because of Louisiana's reputation for its workforce, right? It's like, these are the skilled people that can do this work. There is a, there is a belief and it's true that there is a lateral application in skills. And, you know, workplace safety, paying these people what they need to be paid, having pensions, health insurance, liability, all of the things that, you know, workers should have, like they do in the North Sea. I didn't even go on that rant, guys. <laughs> it raises the profile of the Gulf, right? It raises like when we all like when we all do better, we all do better. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want a race to the bottom where like, oh, go open a place in Louisiana. It's we, you, you can treat your workers like garbage and the quality is really bad and we don't mind poisoning the locals. It's like, no, like we can have state of the art facilities. We have state of the art everything and treat our workers well. And that is the value proposition right? That we lead the world. And so it's like, let's change the paradigm. It's not about how little you can get away with. It's like people running everything or like the kid who like put everything under the bed to clean the room. It's like, stop doing the bare minimum and aspire to do something really, you know, world changing and like world leading. Yeah. And I think that kind of like gets back to how, like how quickly, you know, the wind sales happened. I think that that kind of shows you like how much Louisiana really has to offer because the fact that it happened so quickly for us just shows you that we have all this abundance of resources and, you know, a really great workforce that we can tap into. But like you said, there's been this kind of like race to the bottom and kind of this almost like scarcity mindset where people feel like they have to bend over backwards to kind of bribe these companies to come in and, you know, give all these tax cuts and, you know, like, 
like you said, kind of cut into our public infrastructure that we have just to be able to bribe these companies to come to us. But really, we are the ones in power of all these resources. And I think that that's kind of the message that we're trying to get across with this episode is that, you know, a lot of students, a lot of people that are maybe entering industry or want to be a part of the climate change movement, but don't see how their position as maybe industry workers plays into this. Um, I think that that's kind of like the thing that we're trying to get at with this episode is that, you know, we do have a lot of power as Louisianians, as, you know, students that may be entering into the workforce and industry, that we have a lot of power in this climate change movement. And that, you know, um, at the end of the day, we are essential employees and even the industry workers have a place in it. For sure. And, you know, one thing I was talking to someone the other day about the UAW strike and how there's so much public dollars going into this transition. And, you know, the thing I want people to understand is that we can transition our energy and still wind up in a worse world, right? The idea is that these public investments benefit the public. And, you know, in my research for this, we did a big report on the survey I mentioned earlier, and I was researching the North Sea where, you know, and for Norway. And everyone's very familiar with Equinor, which is a state-owned oil and gas company. And what's interesting to me is that they don't, other companies can go into the North Sea and have a lease with the Norwegian government, but they have to agree to like a 30 page agreement that their workers, regardless, are covered under the same labor agreement as, you know, the industry energy, which is the national union for energy workers in Norway. And, you know, everyone's also familiar with how Norway has this huge investment fund, right? All their oil and gas goes into this big endowment that works out to its trillion dollars. 250,000 per citizen. And so it's mind boggling to me is that that $250,000 per citizen, that trillion dollars, the largest amount comes from, of course, you know, the North Sea. The second largest part comes from the Gulf of Mexico. So these public resources, this big public safety net that's going to every citizen is coming from us. Yeah. And, you know, we just need to have higher expectations of what we get from our resources. Right. We need to raise the bar. Absolutely. Yeah. That's crazy. That's a crazy statistic. I, I know. had no idea about that, that we're literally propping yeah. up the rest of the world right. at the, at the expense of our natural resources, at the expense of our um, worker welfare, mm-hmm. people who live here, just residents, um, water safety. That's, that's crazy. That really goes to show that yeah. is a huge sacrifice. Zone. Oh, like yeah. this is where the sacrifices are made for the rest of the globe. Even, but, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that they're producing oil and gas in Norway. They have refineries. Their people are dying the way they are here because they actually follow rules and they actually run things in a way that protects their people. I'm not saying we're, we should continue with the production, but I'm saying we could have been doing things a lot differently. And the right. only reason we haven't is because, again, it's these guys in their seersucker suits and their mustard on their tie pushing everything underneath the bed, you know? It's just the lowest common denominator. (laughs) Oh man, yeah, that really pays Real jokers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was wondering what the, so just like to kind of wrap up this conversation we've been having about true transition and kind of your, your vision for the future and where we're going, what would you say is the biggest takeaway that you would want to communicate to somebody who's interested um, in this just transition, like interested in learning more, interested in maybe working for the government, or maybe just wondering what they can do in their own lives to, as a citizen, to support a transition um, that prioritizes. Is that all? Worker. Is that all? That's all. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know that's a loaded Nothing. question. So <laughs> it was like it was it was like a Russian nesting doll of questions. Right. Um, okay. So like maybe focus on like the yeah, average. Someone who doesn't work in this area isn't super familiar with every all the ins and outs and statistics around it, but is listening right now and is thinking, wow, this sounds like a good idea. I want to be able to uh, contribute my own resources somehow. To towards, okay. Okay, um, like a regular citizen, civic engagement. I mean, You know, the common call is to be like, get involved in electoral politics, you know, get involved in, uh, I mean, learn more. Like that's, I think, number one, start. 
And wherever you have a sphere of influence, start like pushing a different narrative and get involved where you can. Uh, you know, it's, of course, we want to like stack Baton Rouge with congressional or uh, representatives that represent our interests. And actually we get a, a fair return on our public investments. But it's like, you know, ITEP, you know, getting people involved at those, it's now possible for school boards to say no, to reject ITEP uh, measures, get involved in that process. So if you're not familiar with that, that's the, what is it, the industrial tax um, exemption program. So a company can not pay a billion dollars in property tax, be from Singapore, and then your school has to subsidize that. Get involved in that discussion, be a part of those, that process. You know, if you're a young person at LSU or whatever age, you know, like, again, gravitate towards the boring topics that no one has figured out. Figure out that one thing that we need to have figured out, right? There's so many issues that need to be determined and really planned out. Like, how do we retire this facility? How do we deal with this community with this level of sea level rise? How do we deal, like, what are the ideal sites? How do we make the dredge fleet public again? That's my pet issue. Um, you know, there's so many pieces of the puzzle. Find your piece and really get to work on it. I love that advice. And I'm going to, I'm going to tack on because we have an election coming up. Yes. Number three for everyone over 18, please vote. Absolutely. Please vote. <laughs> please vote. <laughs> Register to vote. I'm voting from then. Austria. You can vote. Yeah. Yes. Right. I love that. You can vote from Vienna. You can vote from... <laughs> Anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> reminder, reminder, uh, the Atchafalaya gremlin, as I call him, uh, had a little scheme where he uh, tried to import workers from Latin America to work at what I think was his LNG facility. Um, like he's part and parcel of this. Right. He tried to negotiate a settlement with Freeport, Freeport McMoran for the coastal restoration lawsuit that would have uh, shielded them from any future lawsuits for orphan wells. Like. Wow. Yeah, he's a little gremlin. We don't want him. <laughs> okay, so just in case we run across him on the street and he's not wearing our name tag that says Atchafalaya Gremlin, what is the name <laughs> of this person? Jeff Landry, AG. Okay, <laughs> Jeff Landry. <laughs> vote. <laughs> vote, everybody, please. Sorry, that's, that's my little nickname. Sorry. <laughs> I, I kind of knew who you're talking about. Right. <laughs> I'll work with guy. you in the future, sir. Don't worry. I'll advise. I mean, that's the thing, too. It's like, you know, y'all, we're in Louisiana. Like, I'm not going to, like, we're going to work with Republicans. Or we're going to work with Democrats. We're going to work with people we got to work with, right? And, like, Republicans were driving offshore wind in a huge way in Louisiana, which was marvelous to watch. Whether it, it shakes out in the way that benefits Louisianans has yet to be determined. And that is still up for negotiations. And it's going to be a hard-fought battle because a lot of these people pushing it own the companies that would benefit from offshore wind. And so we want to make sure that their workers are covered. Um, yes, but votes, but also don't fall into the, we can't work with people. We have, I mean, we're Louisiana. We have no choice. This is just the glib reality that we have. And you might be amazed that some, but there are some wonderful people running, um, Dustin Granger running for treasurer. He's great. Um, really good people. Dave Levy in New Iberia. He is a, in the oil and gas industry and he, flies in his little plane and spots leaking wells. He'd be a great asset in Baton Rouge. He'd get him out. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you um touch on that, that we have to we have the unique opportunity to work with <laughs> everybody across the spectrum here in Louisiana. We'll see that as an opportunity. You'd be amazed. Just get everyone around the crawfish table. Like right. <laughs> That's what I always say. I, I mean like always solve problems and meet somebody. If you can meet somebody at a crawfish table, you can meet them pre pretty much anywhere on their level because I have so many family members that I don't always see eye to eye with and don't really understand why I'm studying something like environmental science. Um, you know, and that's kind of what you're saying is that in Louisiana, you're gonna have to really work with everybody on any side of the political spectrum. So, um, you know, being able to like come together and discuss how we're all affected by the same things and what we can do to kind of move in the same direction and use our resources that we have, even if they're on completely different sides of the table, we can still find some way to find some common ground and move towards a better future and a true transition. Absolutely, that's a way to end it, but I will add to it because that's how I do it. 
you know, everyone, like you sit down and you talk to anyone, like everyone thinks you should clean up when you're done. Like I've talked to every person on the political spectrum, Orphan Wells, they're like, yeah, you should plug that when you're done. You made money from it. You should have saved. I don't know what, you know, no one believes that a, a plastics plant should be emitting chemicals that cause pediatric cancer or pancreatic cancer. Like no one believes that, you know, my mom had this super rare type of breast cancer. She's doing fine. But like sitting in that chemo ring, like everyone of the political orientation was in that chemo ring, right? You know, there is, we actually agree on far more. And that is the place to begin, right? Yeah, that's really good to keep in mind. That's really good to keep in mind. Um, um, Just as a last thing, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, Thank you so much for joining us and giving us all this incredible information and perspective. But uh, where can our listeners find you and your organization? So if you want to give like a social media plug or a contact plug, if you're looking for volunteers, anything like that. For sure. I'm going to send y'all to Leo to help um, because I'm in Vienna, as I've mentioned a few times. Uh, (laughs) True. I know. She's so full of herself. TrueTransition.org. I'm on Twitter. I I don't tweet as much lately because I'm trying to be a good example to my young person. But uh, Bayou Terrier is my name. B-A-Y-O-U Terrier. We had two Boston Terriers and we lived on the Bayou. So Mm -hmm. that's the origin story (laughs) of that one. Um, True Transition is on Twitter. I'm trying to find the exact way it looks. I think it's true underscore transition. I'm pretty sure. We don't tweet on that much because I'm the social media person (laughs) and I'm not doing it enough. Um, But yes, truetransition.org. There's some good stuff on there. Hit me up, info at truetransition.org if you have questions or Megan at truetransition.org. Happy to answer any questions, collaborate. I didn't even talk about dredge boats, um, but you can put that in the show notes. My big uh, push for dredge boats. But anyhow, it was really nice talking with y'all. Thank you so much for everything.